0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Daniel Smith about the fall and rise of the English upper class, houses, kinship, and capital since 1945. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Oh yeah, welcome. Welcome. this, I mean, this is a brilliant, fascinating, and incredibly timely book. Uh, I'm trying to think of a sort of polite way to say because Britain is melting down, <laughs> and you know, finding explanations for that um, is, is is really kind of pressing at the moment. But, but I suppose the place to start is probably with with the title. Before we get into the problem of the English of class, like, who are the English of class? Why are you writing a book about them? At one point, you call them. Uh, our societal others, which I thought was a really intriguing term. So yeah, who are the English upper class? Why write about them?
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, that definition is is kind of trying to, I guess, get at a more intellectual way of putting what you, I think we all feel that it's Britain is crumbling and in crisis and no one really knows what's going on. Um, so I guess the first thing that I wanted to look at with this project was, why am I seeing so many, like for want of a better word, posh people in positions of power, um, talking about all the opportunities that Brexit will offer and um, thinking about a kind of reformation of British greatness and so on. And yet all the histories that I read and my history degree told me was that uh, there's been a decline and fall of the of the British aristocracy and that we've seen a transformation in structures of opportunity and social mobility and the 20th century gave us the welfare state it also gave us a lot of uh, kind of levering out of income and opportunity um, and yet now the world is highly unequal and those same people that we thought were not um, uh, Relegated to the dustbins of history are, right, are, are back, so it was more trying to like square the, the historical story of a decline and fall of, of an upper class with the kind of more uh, contemporary feeling of like it doesn't feel like they fell. Um, so the societal others is um, a way of capturing um, the kind of investments that um, are being placed on uh, as people we could call upper class or might want to consider just in the typical English idiom posh um and it's trying to push the sociology of class in a, in a slightly different direction rather than thinking about classes like income and opportunity rather than thinking of classes relations of domination rather than thinking of classes um a kind of series of things that you do or don't not have like capitals in that board in a sense and offering instead a group of people who are seen to be custodians or invested with Bring in the English back to where they always were. So they're sort of people who live in the here and now, who then connect us back to a there and then. They seem to have their origins in the past, and that they are in some way specially connected to the past, and you know can uh, to re-energize Britain in that way. So there's it's just got a much more anthropological definition of class rather than sociological because it's trying to look at the ways in which people are understood, not just in terms of status, but how they're perceived in the kind of wider sense of our collective identity so yeah that's the societal other bit that i think you've picked up on there dave
0: yeah i mean you mentioned a couple of things that the book is kind of in the shadow of um and it is sort of um kind of writing to 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 kind of unpack so you've got you know the shadow of brexit which you know and again you get into this book uh, in in the book in in quite um quite useful way i think you know on the one hand is know sort of perceived as this sort of you know revolt of um the working class individuals in the north but actually you know it's it's very seriously also an english upper class project you've got you know a set of i'm trying to think what what you call them in the book but you know sort of like almost like memoirs about poshness um and often you know memoirs that are almost kind of like uh mayor culpas about poshness as well you know sort of long apologies by various men about Uh, the posh's you know sort of impact on British and and English society and and then this kind of really crucial thing about the past and and one of the things that's fascinating about about the book actually is we're not talking about really post-1945 as much as we are you know possibly a thousand years of history or or so and kind of thinking about that lineage is something we're going to get into over the course of the book The, the other kind of bit of ground clearing i think we might do is with the other part of the title houses kinship and capital um and it'd be useful i think to get us kind of a flavor of what what those three words mean you know you've mentioned kind of capital already in that sort of Bourdieu cultural class analysis sense but stuff like i guess kinship is you know familiar to anthropologists but maybe houses uh, less so to, to sociology and a, a little bit less to anthropology so yeah well, what's going on with houses kinship and capital
1: yeah yeah that, yeah so if i yeah continue with where the societal others thing uh left off so there's this group of people who are perceived as bringing the english back to how they truly were that they're invested with a lot of hope in terms of um reproducing past greatness and so on well, well how does that there's a kind of simple sociological question which is like okay how does that get reduced how how do these people uh cohere as a as a group um if that's like the way in which they're perceived and it's to this is where the houses thing comes in um the reason why these there is a group of people who are invested with that kind of political and and cultural i think belief system more than anything rather than their actual status is that there's an absence which the those group of people are kind of marking, which is that there's no coherent collective identity that the English has, which is not in some way inflected with class distinctions or uh, social inequalities of some kind. There's always a kind of like thing about collective identity which is never quite collective. So there's a kind of this is what a lot of Marxist historians like Perry anderson and others that I draw on a lot talk about is like the absent center of English society. There's no um, centre for societal unity um so this is where the houses come in is like well there's been there's a series of places uh, which are invested with doing the work of um collect connecting past from present and creating unity where there isn't one so the houses that i'm referring to are effectively another word for what used to be called the british establishment so they that would include the conservative party it would include the church it would include the peerage it would include uh, you know, the regiment uh, of the of the British Armed Forces and uh, the public school system and the, the city and so on. These are uh, and then also you're going to go into a, a more elaborate set. And you can say, well, there's these literal houses, which are the houses of the former great aristocracy, have opened them up to the national uh, in the National Trust or English Heritage. Then you know people can go visit them on the weekend, um, or the kind of social scene of um, of the English upper classes, like henley or 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 royal ascot or um my mum told me them at the weekend she put them all in order for me because i got them out of order and i just forgot (laughs) forgotten but you know there's that that kind of cultural life of like upper class sociability um those are the houses because what they are is they they are connecting the people who go there to some perceived idea of of like you know pucker englishness and um the, the reason why they're so important is one because they, they they are trying to unify what is not very good at unifying, but also what they're able to do is maintain status exclusivity they're a way of of marking class distinction so in terms of their significance, these houses are are one doing the sociological work of reproducing a notion of collective identity and also doing the uh, the, the work of saying only some people can and cannot claim this as a, as a form of membership. So it's like social exclusivity meets economic exclusivity meets cultural belonging. Um, so there you have it. I Hopefully I've uh, unlocked the key of the English class system with that answer.
0: <laughs> I mean, the, the practical way to illustrate houses, kinship and, and capital comes in, in two ways, sort of near, near the start, in the middle of the book. On the one hand, you, you've got some, in some ways, quite hilarious, uh, in other ways, quite depressing um, elements of, of the early chapters where you talk about, you know, we really should think about kinship more. Um, so, you know, you, you've got this wonderful kind of example of, you know, we we might in popular discourse situate someone like David Cameron as sort of, you know, upper middle class. But if you think about his lineage through the school of Eton, actually, he's clearly, you know, aristocratic and that kind of lineage and that kinship matters kinship is also a way of you know excluding people and and drawing boundaries Uh, and i guess to sort of formulate that into a question you might be able to actually answer i I suppose maybe actually let's use that example you know why is kinship important in the context of these institutions these places these settings like eaton um you know what's going on with, with i suppose your analysis of kinship but also at the same time Um, how it really manifests in in, in places that are crucial to the upper class.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think there's like two important things to say about, let's take that David Cameron example about that. Because, uh, so I don't give that as my example. It's that comes from a piece by James Wood in the LRB um, about his time as a scholarship boy at Eton College. And he would do this thing, he says, when he would... He sort of plays this. I'm an outsider, I'm trying to figure out this strange world of the public school system and, and Eaton and its history. And he says, Okay, well, there's these, these people who seem to be really, really like you know, um, at ease in this situation and this whole setting. Uh, and it turns out that their parents weren't here, uh, or their fathers, I should be more specific. Um, and he gives the example of David Cameron and he says, Well not only did his father go here, for, here before him, but then his grandfather and then his great-grandfather, and he goes really very far back to the 1500s. Um, and you're like, oh, wow, okay. There's a, an immense amount of continuity here with the English upper class with, in that a person who's prime minister in the early 20th century can trace his ancestry back to the 1500s. And where I come in and sort of say is like, well, that's really interesting, but that's also A bit of sleight of hand, because although it might be true, I think there's something that's doing a lot of work of continuity here, where there is actually more discontinuity. You can't say that the, the, you know, Cameron's ancestor of the 1500s bears any significance in relation to contemporary political moment, but there's something that's able to make you feel like that, and that's Eton College itself. That's the house which is able to say that there is a lineage of people by dint of them coming here. So the thing I kind of repeat a lot in the book is um, houses um, are kind of um, members belong to the house. uh, The house does not belong to the members. And that's why they're so powerful because the house is this internal thing, eternal thing, which is able to uh, mediate any discontinuity and create a sense of continuity um, when they're, Perhaps isn't one, or there's it's masking a lot of, of the shifts of the past five hundred years, um, and the sort of next piece of, the, of that um, section of the book is looks at another um, piece that's written about the same time as, as James Woods' um, article on his school days, um, which is about or who are the Utopians now, and it is a piece by Christopher De Belleg in, in in the Economist, and he says, okay, well there is. Um, Effectively, three types of Etonian. Now there is um, this kind of global plutocratic class, uh, class of you know wealthy individuals. As long as you're a man, you can come here. As long as you've got lots of money, you can come here. Um, and then there's these: as long as you're a man and you've, uh, you're bright enough to pass the entrance exam, you can come here on a scholarship. And then there's this third group, which is of which I'm a member. He says, uh, and that's because your father went here and your grandfather before you, and that class is shrinking. But the important thing that he then <laughs> says is that those people are more like the Etienne of old than they are um, their, their 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 peers. So it's like, well, what is it? Is it because your father went here, or is it, or is it because you you you're, you're connected to this this house, which is able to do this continuity? Um, I often explain it to, to students that. The university and say well you know there's the old Etonians they're like the slytherins and then there's the scholarship boys in there hufflepuff and then you know it's 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 i know it sounds silly but it's it, it's it's trying to animate the way in which that school is being over invested with a lot of uh, ideological and cultural beliefs which i think um i don't think one school in Barsha is able to do quite that but it seems like it's succeeded for a long, a long time so that's what i'm trying to get at
0: Let's continue that theme, actually, and jump forward right into the middle of the book. Um, and the middle of the book basically compares these three men, um, Rory Stewart, Adam Nicholson, and, and Roger Scruton. Um, but because we talked so much um, about houses, I wonder if we'll, we'll pick up on Adam Nicholson, um, because his story is of like a literal house. Um, So, in in the way that we've been talking about Eton, obviously, you know, houses are important to the British uh, or English public school system, Um, but there is, I suppose, something of a, you know, kind of metaphor going on uh, when we're talking about houses in that sense. But Nicholson's story is, I mean, it's fascinating because there's a lot going on. There's kind of questions about technocratic control. There's, you know, issues around kind of the environmental movement, heritage and preservation, um, you know what it is to be a son um, in an aristocratic context but but yeah what does I suppose that the sort of genuinely practical example of a house tell us about the English upper class
1: yeah yes yeah. In fact, yeah 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 so the Adam Nicholson is the grandson of Harold Nicholson and Vita Sackville West and they are responsible for um creation of a very elaborate and interesting rose garden in uh kent at a place called Sissonhurst castle and that's kind of what that family is famous for um there's lots of other things that we can and lots of things that have been written about that 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 family but um that's kind of what they're known for and if you put them in that context and you look at how they're spoken about in the 20th century when they're Garden and that castle became a kind of national um, destination for you know a Sunday afternoon in the summertime. They are uh, effectively just a kind of proto national trust success story, um, and that's that could be one part of the or a very simple part of how one understands Adam Nicholson. And then when Nicholson takes up uh, inherits the Sissonhurst Castle. In the early two thousands, he comes up with an idea that instead of it just being an ornamental garden which will cater to a, um, a middle class public who like gardening and garden as well, it's um, it could be something which connects back to his um, childhood memories that when it was um, he first it, it was a working farm. And it uh, fed the people on the land with its produce. And it um, had connections with British agricultural history, which is eons old. And it, there's something that's incredibly sad about it just being an ornament now. And it's just been a, a nice garden where you can get a cup of tea. So he tries to reimagine um, Sissonhurst as a working organic farm. And you know, you might mention the environmental movement, so it has kind of that political resonance and that ecological resonance. But as you start to, as I work, well, as I, in the chapter, I try to unpack, he's there's a lot of things going on about his family history, which that idea of um, wouldn't it be nice to have a, an organic farm here again is masking or is being channeled through. And um, what effectively I argue is that this desire. For a small landed estate that has organic produce feeding its customers from its own land, is really just a reimagining of a, a kind of manorial, um, hierarchical, almost uh, feudal structure that goes back about five hundred years. And he tries to he spends a lot of time in his, his his life and work trying to find that continuity, trying to find seeds of that world in the present or remnants of that in the present um and it i say okay well the reason why you're doing that is because you've experienced something called sinking status that as an aristocrat the problem that you have isn't the problem that a working class person has which is i want to try and move upwards in the social world you have the problem of how do i stay at the top of the social world uh because the problem of an aristocrat is you only have one place to go which is downwards and there's kind of a solution of of downward mobility, which is one, you could just go off somewhere else and try and use your status in a new setting uh, and try and, you know, um, uh, found a new dynasty or a new opportunity based on um, how that status is perceived as um, from to an outsider group. Or you could dig down into the earth, uh, quite literally in his case, and try and raise the dead as part of this kind of political power. like wouldn't it be great if these people weren't forgotten? Wouldn't it be great if my ancestry could be in some way preserved and their world preserved in a very literal sense? So as much as it's, uh, hey, yeah, great organic farming, and don't we want to have that? There's also a sense of that it's, it's, it's an aristocratic strategy, an uh, aristocrat strategy to maintain their status. Um, I don't think he'd like me saying that, but that's how I interpret it.
0: I mean, the, the story there is, I guess, you know, this kind of fear of, of, of loss, um, and, and that comes through in Stuart's um, memoir, Rory Stuart's memoir, and and, and also in Roger Scruton's, uh, Scruton's um, various uh, views about England. And I guess these three men, um, I, I suppose their ideas, as well as struggles for, you know, kind of dominance and, you know, the impact of things like, you know, Brexit as an elite project, there is also this question of almost fears and and questions about loss. So so what's going on with the story of loss that they're all telling? You know, Nicholson has got this, again, quite sort of practical manifestation because there are decisions over the land, over the house, Um, whereas particularly Roger Scruton has got much more, I guess, a kind of set of ideas about what might be lost around England.
1: Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, so uh, like, so like, the thing that they all share is that they are conceiving of themselves as sons of fathers rather than as individuals or, or in some way individuals related to other people in the present. So they, they, they all think of themselves as a continuing a paternal project or a project of their, their kinship, their ancestry. Um, but the thing about the way in which kinship is doing that work is that it's actually an idiom for talking about belonging to England outright. So the kinship work is kind of doubled. On the one hand, it's about um, being a good son or an aristocratic son and following in one's father's footsteps. But then there's also a kind of um, sociological dimension to it, which is that you're the one who's meant to give us a sense of coherence for us as a society. So those two forms of um, uh, of loss are kind of, of of playing into one another um now i'll take the Roy stewart one uh, first and then I'll, I'll i'll hopefully be able to explain the the roald one as well um so Roy stewart writes a book uh so Roy stewart, Roy stewart has a fascinating life um, in the sense that he's, if you put into like a chat GPT machine, give me a, uh, a posh British person, it will probably give you Boris Stuart. I don't think it will give you Boris Johnson. I think it will give you Boris Stewart. Um, uh, because he goes to this dragon school, very posh prep school in Oxford, Eton College, um, uh, Oxford, the Blackwatch regiment in the army foreign office, Goes uh, to the Middle East and is a spy, but not really. Um, is a governor of an Iraqi province during a war. Um, and this is all between, before the age of 30. Then comes back and becomes an MP, then becomes a government minister. And now uh, is, is a podcaster extraordinaire. Um, he's got a very interesting life in that respect. But one of the crucial ways in which he tells that story of his own life is being, I'm the son of my father. And his father, before him, had the exact same, you know, education and history, uh, and was, you know, ran MI5 and, and was a colonial officer for many, many, many years. Um, and uh, he is trying to question in this book how far being the son of his father is, in some way, the continuity of Britain as his father knew it. To how he's experienced it and the book is effectively a long protracted realization of him going my father's died and so has the uh, the Britain that he belonged to um, and I have to try and separate my mourning for my father with the things that he stood for in terms of uh, um, uh, in terms of British history and identity so he has to try and untangle the kind of imperial past from his own paternal uh, history um, and in terms of like a success story, if there is a, a, a one that which is much more optimistic, I think Rory Stewart's probably the best example of someone who realised that the way in which you can tell your story through the history of elite institutions like Foreign Office, Eton, the Colonial Office, or so and so on, is a way of going. I don't think this is actually going to work. It's not going to be practical for the future. Um, I don't think that's is you know as success stories go, that's like about as best as you get uh with roger scruden on the other hand i think we're in a much more scary political situation um because uh, if i can be blunt i think it's it much it's, it's much more fascist um and the most far right of all of the political philosophies i try and cover in the book because um Roger Scruton is a person who grew up in effectively a lower I would say maybe working class household. Uh, he goes to grammar school in, in High Wycombe and his dad does, resents him for him being enamored with a kind of middle class, upper class life and um, all its institutions. He doesn't like the fact that this boy wants to go to Cambridge. He doesn't like the fact that this boy um, is taught by former colonial officers and, and uh, former Cambridge pupils, and he doesn't get on with his dad at all. Um, and he tries to find some substitute fathers through his schooling, and he does the same thing that Roy Stewart does with his father. He, he misperceives them as people with what they stand for in terms of um, British history and identity. As a man who teaches him English, but he also thinks that this is a man who who has a key to the tradition of English literature um which is and it's not the same thing um and then there's a man who's a colonial officer and almost is a substitute father to Scruton where not that he doesn't really like Scruton that much and uh that, and also that the empire's kind of unraveling at this point as well so what Scruton finds is that he's kind of rejected by, by both fathers and substitute fathers um and then he also sees to the, uh, um, the, these institutions the public school system the church the clergy the uh, all of the you know high um institutions of of, of rule in uh, england they also die too um and while he's describing their loss he's also making them seem in some way absolute entities like fixed things that are eternal um and the thing for me about this that makes it more uh, i don't want to say fascist again because but if if far right it certainly is that it's only if you belong to those things that you belong to england and if you're not then you're an outsider and you can be treated with a lot of suspicion so he He's kind of over, over, over investing these um, institutions with with power of membership in a way which is not present with, especially though know, you know the way the Eton College talked about him, as I mentioned before, or even the, the houses of the National Trust have talked about with with Adam Nicholson. He's he's given them too much power to do uh, the making of identity, and I think the idea that they are dead rather than completely lost means that he's really in a situation where he can't see any future and it's um yeah yeah i could say more but i don't think i will.
0: <laughs> I hesitate to sort of characterize um the middle section of, of the book about ideas because effectively ideas flow through the entire book itself but but i think there is a distinction that comes in um i almost said the third half of the book but but the final part of the book Where you're much more interested in kind of material practices, I think, um, as opposed um, to to sort of um, the ideas or or, or writings of of particular individuals. And there's two, I have to say, the sort of uh, bookshop chapter I really loved. uh, It reminded me of many bookshops that I've been in and, you know, various kind of scenes that emerge from particular kinds of um, peculiar institutions within uh, English literary uh, culture um, but also you're grappling with style as well and kind of subcultures um, so, so I suppose maybe two two questions to kind of illustrate this material um, element of, of the book one is what's going on with English literary culture you know wh- where does kind of upper classness fit with English literary culture and then what do the English upper classes dress like?
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you're right to characterize the, the if the book is in two parts, it's kind of there's like a series of ideas, which is much more I suppose like a kind of psychoanalytic reading of like the underlying desires of these memoirs by like Stuart, Nicholson and Scruton. And then the second one is is about looking at how I think I would probably try and characterize it by like how those ideas are channeled in material practices or you can be you can locate them in material practices so the, the chapter on the bookshop is um it's an it's a quite simple ethnography i spent two weeks going to a bookshop day after day um and interviewing the people who sell the books and the people who who go there a lot um and became I did, it wasn't going to be about um, the class project. I thought it was going to be about, you know, arts and literature and sociology of culture stuff, but um, uh, it just morphed into um, sort of trying to look at the heritage or the the last kind of disintegration of of a tradition that is quite important to British cultural studies, which is the art and society tradition. And um, one of the themes that I find in that ethnography was on the one hand these booksellers and these readers that i was speaking to were really really passionate about books as i think you know i am and you are and, and, and the listeners of this podcast will be um but they were also very uneasy about where that how that passion can be expressed and also how that passion can be kind of culturally and politically pitched so the tradition that they've inherited is that art or the arts is in some way a moral or ethical virtue a savior to the decline of um societal decline where which in society is like you know being out for yourself or a kind of economic logic of like profit and uh kind of these neoliberal practices of like competitiveness and markets and so on and um society being seen as like very instrumental and living by present experience and um the arts are a kind of respite from that saviour to that because they give you an insight into otherness empathy with other people's way of looking at things through the act of reading itself um, uh, um connecting you to a, a, a tradition that or a heritage of of culture which is um more than the sum of its parts and very nourishing and and so on and it's that's what they've inherited and that's what they've inherited and it's kind of on a very strange class divide because on the one hand i say well there's there's the frank levis version of that story which is more your roger Scruton type of story which is that there haven't been a good book written since dickens and and the literature now is just garbage and um most of these books are kind of like richard and judy bestsellers for people who don't know about serious literature and all these things um, and they don't like that idea because it's very snobbish and, and condescending. Um, but then there's the other side of that, which is more associated with le- the work of Raymond Williams, which is, okay, um, we don't have, uh, I don't agree with Leavis in terms of his snobbery and his conservatism and his kind of doom and gloom, decline and fall of great Englishness, uh, great English literature through um, these literary works. But I do think that, you know, society is, made poor by only living by present experience and um the best ways to get at truths of english society is through reading jane austen um and they're trying to sort of play with those ideas um and i'm saying there's probably more that connects them that separates them and um i'm sort of trying to look in that chapter for those people who are trying to articulate that in the present so like and who are they and while well, they do tend to be people who are culturally considered kind of posh but you wouldn't consider them as like literary tastemakers you wouldn't certainly wouldn't think of them as the most economically privileged of of of, um of 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 contemporary society and you wouldn't think of them as most powerful people so like what is their upper class identity doing well it's doing that thing that i mentioned before which is that they are societal others they are they are seen as custodians of of a way of of life which is connecting us to something before us um and the lesson of this chapter if there is a lesson is that this isn't snobbery and conservatism and um a kind of doom and gloom idea about what culture is and uh, in, in fact it's more trying to say like why do they need to invest English culture with this power why do they need to and be really really uh, uh obsessed with the idea that th- th- these truths of english can- english society can only be found in literature and it's because that this idea cannot be separated from its aesthetic it cannot as a moral virtue cannot not have um english literature and english characters doing it it has to be in some way channeled through that aesthetic um and that's a hard argument to make and i uh, Hopefully I'll pull it off, but that's the,
0: yeah, that's the claim. I mean, the the other aesthetic thing is, is dress and style and you you get into the kind of classic um, tribe almost of the Sloans, which, you know, might be familiar to some listeners um, as both, you know, a kind of cultural studies, construction, um, an actual, you know, material culture, Um, And a kind of, you know, a style or all of itself. And then I suppose the kind of similarities and differences with what you call uh, the branded gentry, and I, I was really struck in that chapter where, you know, your analysis which is quite rare for an academic analysis basically goes out into the wild and you have like you know various kind of marketing agencies being like who are these people uh, how can we market to them <laughs> you know asking you these kind of practical questions so yeah T- tell me about sloans and the branded gentry and where they fit sure. uh, into this fall and rise story yeah yeah
1: definitely so um, i guess like one of the things that the book tries to pick up um, is a kind of idea that you you get from about like 1980 onwards which is that English culture is being diluted by two things either Americanization um, or globalization and also multiculturalism so there's an idea that like cultures can mix and 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 cultures can borrow from one another and you can create these kind of identities which are got lots of different crisscrossing cultural lines and they can be compatible or in some way live with the difference Um, and there is a branch of a kind of English conservative imagination which says no if you get rid of tradition you're getting rid of Englishness itself and the past is being lost because tradition is is the carrier of continuity with who we really are um and um one of the things that I try and pick out as one example of this is the invention of the Sloan Ranger and so the Sloan Ranger is is a book um a kind of path uh kind of tongue-in-cheek observation of of uh, upper-class cultural life in the 80s written by two society journalists one of whom is probably more famous than the other uh, called peter york um, who is a um both a journalist and also a kind of cons- marketing consultant brand consultant who does lots of work on um his sort of thing is just i'm i really know culture and i really know um its ins and outs And he's a very great substitute observer, and he gets this class really, uh, gets the Sloan Ranger really, really well. So he observes all these things about the upper classes of of his contemporaries and writes a book called the Sloan Ranger Handbook, which tries to tell you all the things that an upper class person would do, and he calls it the Sloan Ranger. And, And the irony of this is kind of, as you mentioned, that he then gets contacted by lots of people saying, oh, well, wh- wh- who are the Sloans and what they're going to do? And he's like, well, I made them up. Um, I just observed my my friends and and the people I was going to these society events with as part of my job as a journalist. Um, but now I'm being asked by people like, is this a good school to send my child if I want to be a Sloan? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 right. Um, so it's a kind of strange kind of like unintended consequences of like, um, of, of action because he invents this group and then the group then defines itself. And, um, and fast forward about, you know, 20, 30 years, I'm doing a PhD and I'm looking at this group of people who are interested in the clothing of this, uh, this brand called Jack Wills, which is like, um, kind of based on like a, a an upper class Edwardian type, the like Bryce head revisited sort of thing, but in the 21st century, um, and looking at the lives of, of people who are at university with, you know, and all the fun things they do from going on ski trips to polo games, to going to the British seaside in these expensive boats and so on. And, um, I call them the brand gentry because they are identifying with a kind of form of, of, uh, English lifestyle, which is associated with more of the landed upper classes, but they're, they're, they're not appropriate in land, they're appropriate in brands. as sort of the symbols of of, 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 uh, of that lifestyle, of, of that identity. Uh, and then like Peter York, I have people phoning me up and going, well, who are they and how do we sell them cake? And um, it was trying to like investigate where and how that aesthetic was trying to um, respond to kind of social anxieties political anxieties about who we are as a nation that i started to think okay well this is another thing that we don't have we don't have a collective identity that isn't inflected with class or we don't have an idea of of ourselves as cohesive um, other than through the idioms of class so there's a reason why peter york And The Sewing Ranger was so successful because it was offering you a vision of a total, like, this is English life, this is properly how you do it, and this is a brand, and this is, you know, a proper, how you become a, you know, posh university kid uh, and do it well, this is the whole package um, and I call them the branded gentry because what they're doing is not just simply branding something but they are seen as custodians of something as well they're seen as the only people who can oversee the continuation of these traditions whether it be like the right type of dress at Savile Row for like the Sloan Rangers or whether it be the right type of, of heritage clothing for Jack Wills or whether it be um you know the um it, it, oh, it's like there's so many different things that you go you could pick up on um uh in in um i guess consumer culture really that that connects you to english traditions and if you look at who's kind of the people who are doing it they people who are quite posh so yeah there's there's a kind of that continuity it's the way of like status behavior is 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 doing that work of societal love and connecting you to a past.
0: There's all kinds of other things we, we we could talk about. I mean, I sort of made a mental note. We, you know, barely touched on money, um, and uh, which is ironic, given you know that the sorts of both, you know, sort of cultural anxieties um, and you know the the I suppose struggles about the display of wealth and its denial and stuff like this that you know comes up quite quite a few times in in, in the book, but. In conclusion, I I might sort of throw something slightly provocative at you. Really good social analysis, which I think this book does, um, often leaves me with a sense of, uh, I suppose, a kind of, you know, we've captured with the analysis how things work. And the question is always, could things work differently? Because there are definite downsides to, you know, both, you've alluded to these a couple of, in a couple of different ways you know both the kind of english upper class dominance but also more broadly in the way society is organized around uh, their continuing quest for dominance so is it possible to kind of draw from the book or, or is there in the book a, a way of kind of thinking and, and doing england englishness and indeed probably the world given you know England's sort of interconnections with with various other parts of the world, doing those things differently. Is there a an alternative that that comes through the book as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is hard to answer, um, and I do, but I do have a, i do have something. Um, so I said before, and I say a lot in the book, which is that the this houses of Englishness they they don't belong to the members; members belong to the house. And another way, like, I then end the book with is to try and say, like, well, if the house always wins, then you're not going to feel very good about it. Um, there's a the, the big part of you, which is, like, like, do you feel good at the moment? Do you feel like England's working? I mean, at the start, we are talking about how it's crumbling, and yet these institutions are seen as the answer when actually I think they're, they're more about, they're more suffocating than they are... Given us freedom to be who we are, or, or, or English society wants to be, and I try and be quite fair in the book and say, like, I do think we're all in some way implicated in, with this. It's not just the a few upper class people or a few people that broke for Brexit. I think there's there's something rotten in the state of of, of England. Um, so one of the things that I say about this is like, well, how did the House Society arise? It arose out of a of a crisis of airship. There was a time when English landowners couldn't have uh, an heir to their estate. So what they did is they opened up um, kinship networks to wider relatives, and then they were able to find that their daughters could marry you know, second cousins or, 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 or other relatives, which you know won't dilute the gene pool and stuff and be incest. What that meant was, was that there was more and more people who were eligible to inherit in the house. And if you look at contemporary period dramas, Downton Abbey or ghosts or other you know stories about a big house, they always start with there's an air to this house. It's crumbling, but there will be an air. And I think that the English tend to think that because there will always be an air, that there will always be continuity whereas what i try and say is no, that there's that means that anyone can do this anyone's eligible so if anyone is eligible maybe you could probably say the house is not the thing anymore it's 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 um it, it's something you can give up and there might be more continuity there might be more discontinu- discontinuity and that might be good rather than trying to seek continuity all the time so yeah with that i hope there is hope
0: <laughs> i mean there's Various sort of uh, future research projects that flow uh, from that point, uh, I think. And and also, I mean, you know, within whether it's ethnography of the bookshop or, you know, even something like coming back to the book in a decade's time to, to kind of think where the English upper class are up to. Um, or actually, you know, sort of wondering whether you've settled your accounts with the English upper class and, and they're going to do something uh, different. What well, what's next in terms of, of your work, your your sort of projects and your writing? Uh,
1: I, well, probably, uh, probably try and prove this, how society theory in a more robust way. I think I've given you the outlines of the theory. I think I've given you some of the ways in which it can be empirically situated. But I need to now give you an elaborate series of kinship networks of the upper classes and show you how it, how it really is, um, gone over time. So like maybe like the advanced structures of English kinship or something like that. Um, so that's probably project one or project two is I, I just, yeah, like you say, settle my accounts and, and try and do something else. Um, and, uh, I'll, I'll hopefully come back in a couple of years time and talk to you about it. <laughs>